I'm having a goddamn blast on tour with this Big Mouth and a Small Town tour. So I've added some dates and wanted to let you know where I'm headed next. Uh, yeah, March 14th, I will be in Lakeside, Arizona. And then the 15th and 16th, I'm finally coming to Tucson. So if you're in Tucson, I'm coming to Laughs Comedy Cafe. Get your tickets. We're going to have a good time. My good friend Noah Koffer will be featuring at those shows. He'll also be with me the following weekend when I come to Grand Rapids, Michigan. Dr. Grins, I cannot wait to see you guys again. Those are always some of my favorite shows, and I'm sure this year will be no exception. And then I am headed up to my home state of Alaska for the Alaska Before You Die Fest. Anchorage, you better not fucking sit on these tickets. They're going fast. There's a few left. Uh, April 5th, I will be doing shows at the Gumbo House. It's downtown. I'm doing an early and a late show, one night only. It's an intimate venue, so tickets are limited. It's going to be out of control. If you've come to my show at Coots before, you know how fun they are. This venue is so much better for comedy. I can't even explain it. Just get fucking tickets. These shows are going to be wild. And then on the 6th, I'm headed down to Homer. Homer, Alaska. I am coming, performing there for the first time. Alice's Champagne Palace. And then on the 7th, I will be in Seward, Alaska. So Anchorage, Homer, Seward. We're having a goddamn good time. I'm going to come kill at all those shows because I'm a fucking Alaskan assassin. Am I sorry I said that? I don't know. Listen. Dayton, Kentucky, 12th of April. If you are in the Cincinnati-ish area, Dayton, Ohio, Dayton, Kentucky, this is your chance to see me at a really cool new venue called the Commonwealth Sanctuary. And then I am headed to Portland, May 3rd. I'm headlining the Rip City Comedy Festival. I will be at McMenamin's Mission Theater. You guys, this is a cool theater. We want it to be packed out because, of course I want it to be packed out, but also like, Let's have a goddamn good time in this nice, beautiful theater. So come to that. It's going to be a hell of a time. I can't wait to come back to Portland. And then Wisconsin. I'm headed back your way. But this time I'm coming to Janesville, May 17th and 18th. Green Bay on the 19th. And then what up, Florida? St. Pete, Tampa. I'm coming your way. Uh, Tampa, I will be there June 2nd. And St. Pete, um, they're ahead of that, uh, May 31st. Tampa, I'm at Side Splitters. And if you go to the links in all of my bios or go to their website to get tickets, for a limited time, you can use the code JMS and get $5 off tickets. And wherever you are, I'm trying to get people to buy tickets early instead of waiting to the last minute and making me panic so that if it is going to sell out, it sells out faster so that I know that, the club knows that, maybe we can add a second show. Just FYI, that helps every artist that you're a fan of. So if you can ever buy ASAP, go ahead and do that. Uh, So that's your incentive to buy early in Tampa. And uh, uh, I'll be adding more dates soon. If you did not hear your town, but you want me to come there, head over to my Instagram, instagram.com slash jmscomedy or just at jmscomedy if you're using the app like most of us. Uh, click the link in my bio, join my email list. That lets me know where you guys are so I know what areas want to come see me. Uh, so do that. I can't wait to get to more cities. I'm having so much fucking fun on the road. You guys have been amazing. People have been buying merch. These audiences have been out of control, good, just electric, laughing, having a blast. And I know all these upcoming shows are going to be no exception. So I will see you there jmscomedy.com slash shows to get your tickets. Tell your friends. Tell your enemies. We're going to have a fucking good time either way. So thanks for listening to this little promo. Enjoy this episode. Ta-ta, idiots.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same-game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. What kind of ignorant shit is that? At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought? You idiot, you fool! Hey, dummy! This is the Ignorance is Blessed podcast. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Hey, idiots, welcome back to Ignorance is Blessed, the podcast that attempts to overcome ignorance mostly by asking ignorant questions. With me, Jessica Michelle Singleton. I'm your host. And I don't know anything. That's why we're here. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. Please hit that subscribe button. Leave me a rating and a review. It really helps. If you haven't done that yet, but you've been listening for a while, what are you doing? Come on, help me out. It's so simple. It's free. Thank you. Just go. Okay, pause. And now do it. And now you're back, I assume. Uh, If not, do it at the end of the episode. Shout out to my best idiots forever, Gene and Kathy, over on Patreon. You can get involved and support the podcast and get extra long episodes, which means the full over an hour episode. Everything's released early. We're doing group hangs. And also, I'm pulling my stand-up from all my other social media, and stand-up clips are only available on Patreon. We just started that last week, and I am excited to keep sharing clips with everyone over there. Thank you for supporting me. Uh, I know we all have to be conscious and frugal with our support of different things in these crazy times and I appreciate those of you who have squeezed me into your support the arts budget Uh, speaking of supporting the arts you can also support me by going to getneuro.com slash jms to get 15% off of your first order of neurogum that's right it's neurogum they bring you this podcast they bring you almost anything from me these days because I'm chewing a lot of neuro gum. It's caffeinated gum with B vitamins and L-theanine so it gives you energy but it's focused and you don't get the same crash you'd get with a regular old cup of coffee or whatever. Uh, speaking of cup, cup of coffee, the cups of coffee, speaking of coffee, listen you guys I'm about to make a shit joke but I can't find it so I'm just going to tell you 
that I have partnered with Squatty Potty. You may have noticed over on my social media, Nicole, Amy Schreiber, and I are doing some fun social media partnerships with them because just like Neurogum, after singing their praise and a little bit joking about like, come on, you owe us. But like, we both literally love Squatty Potty. Now we're teaming up and you can be part of the team. That's right. You can be part of the squat team with us. You can be Squatty Pottying along with us. And you can get 20% off with our code. So go to SquattyPotty.com. Use the code FILTHY20. You will get 20% off. If you're not familiar with the Squatty Potty, look, it's, I think, the greatest invention of our time. It's basically a stool shaped around the bottom of your toilet where you put your legs, instead of putting them on the ground, raises your body to a squat-like position, which sounds, you know, silly or useless, except for that our human bodies are meant to be squatting when we poop. So it makes stuff just bloop right out of you it's literally i it's the best thing it's taken down my toilet time by hours why am i on the toilet for hours because i'm not uh a well person but no it's you sit down you squat your legs up on it and it's easy peasy poo poo squeezy really almost no squeezing if you think about it but they also have some other fun products they've got a line of toilet spray called putanicals you spray it in the toilet and it hides the scent of your duders and they also have a foaming wash that you can spray onto toilet paper this is what i'm most excited about because this is a new product you spray the foam onto the toilet paper it turns it into a wet wipe and it's travel size so you can uh it comes with those little uh clips that you can hook on to like your keys and stuff so you can take it everywhere no more spitting on your toilet paper or on a weird napkin if that's something you've done. I'm not saying I've done it. I'm just saying maybe someone has. I've definitely done it. I've been to a lot of rest areas, which are frankly full of everything except rest. Anyway, enough about me and my bowel movements on the road. I am super excited for this episode. Okay, you guys, listen. If you know me even a little, you know I am a huge fan of Robin Williams' work. He is an incredible comedian, incredible actor. Loved him, love all that he's done, and of course, like many of us, was so devastated when we lost him. And uh, there's a new documentary out called Robin's Wish, and it's really about his his diagnosis and what was really going on with his Lewy body dementia and how he was deteriorating and what really happened. And it's directed by a young man by the name of Tyler Norwood, and he sat down with me to talk all about it. I watched it before I jumped on the interview. It's really touching. So, um... It's over on Amazon. Look it up. Find it. There's also a link in the show notes uh, if you want to check it out. It's an incredible documentary with incredible clips, including a photo of Robin through the window of the original room at the Comedy Store, which lately is the only place I perform. So that hit me a little bit extra hard, I think. But um, this was a cool interview. A uh, cool interview about a guy who, who loved an artist that we all love and how he dug into this and found this incredible story. And uh, also a great documentary to check out. So enjoy this and then go, you know, grab a box of tissues and watch Robin's Wish. Tyler Norwood. Hey, everybody. I am here with Tyler Norwood. Wait, did I just pronounce your name wrong? No, you did it wonderfully. Okay. I just had the thought of you have a very, uh, I appreciate the unique spelling of your first name. But then I was like, oh, I was supposed to be like, Tyler? God, that's probably an annoying thing you hear all the time. Well, thank you for joining me. 
you're here because you've got you've got an incredible film documentary out, Robin's Wish. I just watched it. Thank God I had a few minutes to like clean up my face. I literally was like, oh God, Robin, I love you. First of all, thank you for putting all your time and energy into creating something so amazing. It was a total pleasure, honestly. I can imagine. It's just like the, he's a hero to myself, but so many people, you know, it's, I'm sure. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Uh, when, when somebody calls you up and says like, do you want to right the wrongs of Robin Williams' legacy? You're like, I've been waiting for this call my whole life. <laughs> like, this is what I was born for. Yeah. Is that what, is that how this happened? That's what I wanted to ask you about. Like, was it, because I, I was curious, I know with so many documentaries, sometimes they just kind of start off and you don't know the direction they're going to go. Or was this very specific? Because for those who haven't watched, everyone check it out. There's a link in the show notes. There was like a heavy emphasis on, you know, the Louis body stuff and and everything. So how did you, how did this begin? Sorry, I'm all over the map because I'm so excited. I love it. Okay, so so Susan Schneider-Williams, Robin's widow, two years after he passed. So like, I mean, it's very fresh in my mind when I get the phone call from her through a mutual friend. And so he, so she calls me and I'm like, what is this going to be about? I don't know. And she says, would you like to do a documentary about Lewy body dementia? And we're going to get some of the best scientists in the world. And, and I was like, um, no. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was like, I, I was like you know, Susan, like why, I was like, why, um, more importantly, it takes about two to three years from the moment we're sitting at this, you know, like in this phone call to when we're going to be sitting in a theater. Like, how is that going to sustain you? Because I've never been excited about science as like a, you know, yeah. I can do a half hour. We're talking about like, you want to film and we're going to go around the country and interviews. I was like, what is going to sustain you for this? And she was like, well, this is what Robin had. And I was like, okay, I'm a big Robin fan, never heard this. Like, please tell me more. And then she started telling me about these stories of what they went through personally. Like these like just heart-wrenching, beautiful, powerful, like sort of redemptive moments that she and Robin went through. And I was like, if that's the movie, all in. I'm all in, right? Yeah, and like, I don't want to just do a boring science. Yeah, thing. and I and it was like it was like if 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 you know you called me to do something and I, rather than being about podcasts, you were like I want to talk about Parkinson's disease, and it's like that is not where my head was at. But like you know why? Um, <laughs> and then, so, but once I was like, okay, now you're in the movie, right? She wasn't going to be so I was like, now you're in the movie, and the stories that you and your husband went through, who passed away two years ago that's all that is the movie and she was like whoa right and she had to take that back home and like think about it and eventually she was like all right like let's just start doing an interview like and just see how it goes and so we did actually nine hours of interview and by the end of that I was like this is the biggest story I've ever because it's it mean it like as you know it like completely rewrites what happened to Robin Williams in terms of pop culture because so many people so many memes about like oh you smile all the time but like really people like don't see you when you're sad and it's like there was this there's this really strong undercurrent of a narrative that Robin was just depressed and had a bad night and couldn't take it anymore and he made us laugh for so many years but that made the depression and pain he was in all that time even more and he just eventually couldn't take it and we know that is true like which is crazy because that's what I thought, too, is that, like, the very sad clown narrative and then watching this as a comedian and being like, oh, that's... Because, you know, for, for like, the, when it happened, it's like, yeah, man, it's I get it, kind of. You know, it's like, it's... it's all these right. songs of... Wow. It's seductive. You're like, oh, this makes sense. Uh, Chris Farley, John Belushi, like, this makes sense. Like, the gods of comedy, this is, this is, the, this is their Achilles heel, right? Yeah. And, like, the idea that, like, but wouldn't it be amazing if you could take one of those names off that list because yes 
And the thing that's so powerful about this, like it, it got me into the space where it became bigger than Louis body dementia. Cause yeah. in that narrative, undoing that narrative is about saying like, Robin's real wish was giving us all places where we could escape like the pain and scariness of our lives with these beautiful, heartfelt, warm, funny sometimes, but also just tragically beautiful and other times with his performances. And that like, that was a, that was a time where as me as a kid could escape those dark thoughts or could escape into the movies. And that's something I love. And he gave me that. And to sort of find out that he didn't have this craziness, it gave me this thing of like, unfortunately what that narrative does is it brings us all into this space where we go, oh, you have dark parts of you and that's shameful. And like, actually Robin's story is he acknowledged those dark places that we all have. Yeah. And he did the work through AA and through exercise and through being mindful. And like, you know, he really put the work in to be present. And so when you, when you have that darkness that we all have and you do the personal work to be present for the world and give gifts, you should get credit for that rather than to be penalized for yeah, like- Yeah, and then for your entire legacy to be like, he, he just couldn't get out of the darkness and that whole that overarching thought that everyone had about like wow this guy who made us all so happy even and he's so successful it's like he couldn't get past it like, right well and it gives, it gives like people who aren't creative or aren't willing to do that work like a little bit of like well you know i'm glad i'm not a comedian because you know those people and it's like he he made millions and millions of people lives better he gave so many beautiful gifts he was there for so many friends and so many people like from the homeless to the soldiers to the you know like kids at st jude's who were going through terminal illness like yeah. this is a person that like if you want to try and explain his his life away with some armchair psychology you've done a disservice to him but you've really done a disservice to yourself right because yeah. one of the things that i also found is that a lot of people when i talked to about this they'd be like yeah i haven't watched a robin film in like three years and it would be like oh that's, he died about three years ago it was like it would it would put this block where people didn't even want to access the movies anymore and that yeah. was the part where i was like wow that's not cool right we can do better and so that was that was the big deal for me was like yeah let's educate people but with the goal of tearing that narrative apart putting him back where he belongs as somebody if he would had cancer right like the thing that was so great is the guy from black panther chadwick boseman right like yeah he will forever be recognized as great and even more great because of the way that he faced this terminal illness at the end of his life and that robin's story should be right next to that yeah that it's like he was battling something much bigger than any of us could have known he, that, that he even knew you know and i he never got a diagnosis right that's the other thing like the the, the entire thing like in the movie right sean levy the director of the museum series he's saying like you know, Robin's on the third movie. He's like, Robin's calling me at two, three, four in the morning saying like, you know, I'm not me anymore. I don't know what's happening. Is any of this good? And you know, this director's like, yeah, no, everything's cool. You're Robin Williams. Like, you like, but like really <laughs> everyone was going through this trauma with him. Right. Because nobody knew what was happening, but everybody saw it. And yeah, then everyone saw him yeah. not being himself. And, and so Sean Levy ends that bite by saying, you know, I saw a guy who wasn't himself and he thought that was unforgivable. That that became the real pain of Robin's stories. He couldn't do the thing he always loved to do anymore. Like he, yeah. he had this thing taken from him and he didn't know why. And that for me is so, like he he was such a generous person because you know, the other thing that Sean would tell me that didn't make it into the movie, but was it the idea that like, 
during production, like if they, if they were switching shots or something and there's a lot of downtime on a film set, like Robin would just jump up and start doing 45 minutes of stand-up for like everyone on set because that's just who he was. Like he loved bringing warmth and light and like making something that was kind of glum in terms of moving lights around or whatever. All of a sudden it became electric and exciting because now all of a sudden, you know, you're doing your job, but like Robin Williams is like making you laugh. It's like that that's who someone was. That was something I was so excited to be a part of. Like just the idea of like rem- reminding people that, there's no one who can be like, you can't make a painting and then the real you be less interesting than the painting. You're always going to be more interesting than the, than the work that gets out into the world. And so the idea that people loved Robin's films, but thought he wasn't as good as the people in the movie, it's like, he was better. He was way better. Yeah. yeah. And I, yeah. Thought, I, I thought it was very cool how you showed so many aspects of his life, bringing in, you know, like, comics he's worked with and his older friends and just like how intimate it got it's it's surprising now to hear that it started as what sounds like susan more wanting to get some awareness about just the disease in general because she I, was I think, a grieving widow right so like yeah. she, was, she wasn't thinking creatively she was just like we got to fix this yeah she's just it's like so I guess, I guess it was probably a little like, I, I want to raise, because I've, I've seen stuff about her, you know, trying to raise awareness about these in general, but also like, I need the narrative to change. I need people to know there wasn't some sort of... Well, she thought, she thought what was going to happen is we were going to raise awareness about LBD and then maybe in interviews around the film, she could say, because she thought, I mean, the, the whole thing is actually what's really crazy about this is also another layer of this film is undoing bad reporting, which is so hard. Right, because when Robin died, oh, all these God. narratives came out because his his uh, autopsy report conclusively showed that he had one of the worst cases of LBD that anyone had ever seen. And doctors who did the autopsy were like, "I'm surprised this person could could Function walk, let alone yeah. talk." Right, and they so if that could have come out without any reporting having been done, I think people would immediately understand. But because he died and there was three months before that information was known, there was all these people. Because when Robin Williams dies, you have to say something. You have to right? say something, and then of course it's in the nature of news, especially anything in pop culture for people to just, well, you know what gets ratings is speculation. Yeah, maybe so. it was money. Maybe he was back on drugs. Maybe it's like, they were just literally saying this. Like we have, a, we have a thing in the film where it's like respectable journalists, like being on TV going like, maybe he was worried about money. And it's like, do you think that like, it's just so, it's so speculative and un, it's like irresponsible, deeply Absolutely. irresponsible. I mean, um, I. I remember yeah. a lot of those reports and just being kind of surprised by uh, having the same thought of like, it feels like people are jumping to a lot of conclusions here, which is always my thought with most news reports. Yeah, but, which is correct, probably. But then yeah. the, the important part of this story is that then, so then the three months passes, all this bad reporting has been done. And then Susan finds out what actually happened and naively goes, oh, I'll just go tell people. And so she goes on every TV show, every, like Today Show, she goes on The View, she goes on all these places and goes, Robin had Louis body dementia. And they go, oh, cool. And then like all the reporting though is like, Susan Williams says Robin had Louis body dementia. And so people like you or me, I was like, oh, well, you know, it's, it's tough to be a widow. Like, you know, I'm sure she doesn't want it to be whatever it was, right? And so and it, yeah. it, it gets, just gets mixed in with all the other stuff. And so she thought we were just going to do an LBD story because she'd already set the record straight. And it was like, I didn't know this. And I'm a big Robin fan. And like, none of what you did, none of that work penetrated to me. And so it was like I, telling her she had to get back in and do it all over again. She was going to have to go deeper than she'd ever gone before on TV. And, and these like, you know, she was, I mean, those were heartfelt interviews where they're like, your husband died of what with like cameras pointed at her and oh, yeah. so the idea of going through that again and saying not only do you have to do it again but you have to go deeper than you've ever gone before if you really want to break through people's sort of 
membrane of like, I already know this and I got to go to work. Right. Yeah. Like, that it's like, you need to like painting the picture of like what that really looked like, you know, in the last couple of years of his life and how it was definitely, it was hard, but it was definitely fascinating seeing, you know, all the people close to him telling the stories of the ways he wasn't different. And then just thinking about how hard that must be. It, it did break my heart when you, you mentioned it already, but Sean in the interview going, he, he thought that was unforgivable and just this idea of someone feeling like so much of who they are and, and why they're where they are is because of the way their brain works and then to start losing that and also that he never got the closure of because well, you know that it says it says in the documentary but he asked the doctor because he gets di- he, got, he got diagnosed with parkinson's which i wasn't actually clear was that a misdiagnosis because of the symptoms no, so the or they, the, both, they both coexist the lewy body dementia turns into parkinson's at the okay. very end Okay. So you get like a little confused. bit of shaking and some reduced function at the end. But okay, in Louis okay. dementia, that means you've already gone through the worst parts of Louis dementia, and that's the last step. Is like losing the physical. Because by that point, you're having vivid hallucinations. You're having complete, basically your brain is jacked, and it's starting to work on your nervous system so that you're like literally your limbs start malfunctioning. Uh. But basically by that point, like we can know he was having vivid hallucinations that are often – very scary right like from other patients so like we have to i didn't want to speculate too much in the film but like you know we're on a show where it's my opinion only yeah Um, of course he absolutely was having hallucinations those hallucinations from all the experts i've talked to are usually from a part of your brain that's like not the best like it's kind of where bad dreams and nightmares like sort of like paranoid type of delusions very scary stuff and it's as real as me talking to you right now to people who are going through this disease yeah he's like vivid hallucinations and bobcats in the film his friend bobcat who was also his best man at his wedding saying yeah "Yeah, he called me all the time and like he was seeing stuff that wasn't real yeah and and he's on the joe rogan show when he does that so i mean it's like you know he's he's out in the public saying that very clearly but saying that yeah but it was just a really it's a really intense thing that this guy went through all of this. But I think the other thing that the film does beautifully is it shows the way that he responded to it, which is that he never like lashed out. There's not some friend who was like, Oh, you called me and told me I was a piece of shit. It's like, Robin was like, I want to, I want to fix this. I want to, I want to get better. And I want to be back to being myself again. And he he didn't know that that was never going to be possible. Yeah. That he's like, I want to keep being this like source of joy for everyone. I just would like to get back to where it feels normal. Like where, where I was, which I mean, I I can only imagine not having an answer. Cause I, I think sometimes just in my experience with like, I have an autoimmune disease, but talking to other people who have various diagnoses, sometimes a a proper diagnosis gives you a little tiny bit of, okay, now I know what it is. Huge. And never having so much going on with your brain when you, especially when the way his, I mean, we all know how sharp and quick his brain was for him to be losing that and so aware of it and not have a clear answer. I can't even, that's so hard. It's so hard. And I think to your point, like, I mean, some of, some of the things you'll see in the film is like, him sort of being like almost catatonic on set. Like one of the things actually Joe Morgenstein wrote a really beautiful review of the film in the wall street journal. And he mentioned that he, he actually was on set for night at the museum three. Um, Cause he was on the Fox lot, like doing something else. And he ended up on this thing and he saw Robin from a distance. And in the article he goes, I thought it was Robin's stand in. 
because it just didn't have it looked like robin but it wasn't robin right like and it was just like wow. and so he's like i didn't even say hi to him because i i couldn't tell what was going on but that was not robin williams and this cool thing is that joe joe uh, morgenstein had spent like weeks with him in the 80s doing this cool article that i still have to go find but basically like he was like back when robin was like just people were like um he was on oh, inside the actor's studio or whatever that is yeah and the guy asked him like this is like peak robin he's like he's like are you just thinking faster than the rest of us? Like what's happening inside your brain, right? It was like, it was like the real peak of everyone's fascination with like, this dude can just create like an entire world that's hilarious, like out of nothing. And yeah. so he's like, Robin has this beautiful monologue about like what happens inside of his brain and like what he's really doing. And of course he creates it like on the spot in the moment of and course. it's like three minutes long and it's beautiful. Um, and so Joel Morgenstein, like after seeing those kinds of things was like, let me come and like hang out with you. And when you have those moments, like, let's just stop it and try and figure out like where it comes from. And so he wrote this really great like article for the Rolling Stone or something back in like the early nineties that was about like just the, the intense creativity and like energy and spontaneity of Robin. And so when he saw him on set of that movie and that guy wasn't there anymore, he was like, you know, I didn't even say hi to him. And you, and you just, and you see that time and time again in all these friends of Robin's like David E. Kelly, right? Like, you know, yeah. another person who, who's, they all went through this trauma with Robin and because Robin never got a diagnosis, they, they were left with this kind of like pain of like, I don't know what happened to my friend. Right. Yeah. And so they all, they, this film, I think in a lot of ways, getting these interviews out and giving them the confidence of saying, we've got a rep groups that represent over 50,000 neurologists signing off on the science of this film. We've got Robin's wife, like being more open than, than she's ever been. We've got friends of his, like, so it, it gave, every time I added a piece to it, it gave more people freedom to just say what they saw without having to feel like that was gonna have to stand up to scrutiny. It's like, this is just what I saw, do with it what you want. And that, yeah. that was a cathartic experience for a lot of people. Oh, I'm sure the being able to go, okay, this thing that I witnessed and also hearing like, okay, other people were seeing this. Because I mean, just just listening to the interviews, it sounded a lot like people were kind of like, you know, trying to rally around him and go like, let's let's not make this a big thing. We don't need to draw attention to the fact that he's, you know, brain's getting a little slower or different or. Yeah, David E. Kelly was like, he was getting brain scans like while they were making the show. It's like the idea that the star of your show is getting brain scans and like nothing's showing up. It's like David E. Kelly has to respond. Like he's making that show having to think about the star of my show is like falling apart and like nobody can, like that's a trauma for him to go through, right? Like by extension. And so it's yeah. this idea of like all of these people getting an understanding of that. And the other thing, again, I mean, Sean Levy is so good in this thing. It oh, he's great. That was like, what? What an interview. But at the end, at the end of the film, Sean Levy's going like, you know, it finally, it finally has gotten to a point where it feels like it's more loyal to share than to like keep the secret anymore and to share without shame, without like, you know, because because that's what all these people were holding, this shame of like their friend was going through all this pain and they couldn't do anything about it. And Robin couldn't do anything about it. And it felt like a dirty secret that like hurt. And it's like yeah. once you give them the diagnosis to your original point we're going back like minutes but like yeah this idea of diagnosis like once they all understood what had happened to him it, it gave them a release right yeah and, and so all of that coming back to the idea that robin was one of the most resilient people 
right? Like I've ever heard of just in terms of the things that he went through in his life and the way that he confronted those worked through them and then transcended them. And not like with the sense of like, okay, I beat that thing. And now I'm on to the next thing. Like he incorporated all of these practices into his life, right? From, from uh, exercise and, and biking. Like he would go on like 50 mile bike rides, right? That like was incredible to learn. I didn't realize that. And I'm like, oh, that, that was his meditation is. And his friend from college was like, oh yeah. Like in the early days, like when we were in college, Robin would go for like 30 mile runs or something a 20 mile run and you're like that's somebody who's not just exercising right like that's somebody who's working something out and they know that they need to do that or they get into trouble and so it's like well and i I mean i think it's hard for anyone to conceptualize having a brain like he had like we've all you know witnessed with his like amazing talent and and all the films that we we all know and love but i think that there's definitely a component to keeping exercise being a way to keep your mental health, but and when your brain's working at like a thousand times faster than so many other people's, it's probably like an extra, it's a, it's an extra bit of work you have to do to kind of maintain your sanity. It's, I mean- Maintain I your sanity and to be able to be the person you wanna be, right? Like that's yeah. the thing that was really powerful to me is that all of these things built, like he was really active in the AA community, right? Because like he had, he had had his issues with, like he was in the hotel room at the Chateau Marmont when like, when John Belushi went over the edge and, and went, right? Like, yeah. and everybody, everybody was like, John Belushi was like the original party animal, right? Like this dude was like taking everything and then been going and Robin yeah. was neck and neck with him, right? This is like early eighties, like just down the street from the comedy store, right? Like, yeah, the crazy like, times, roll, right? Like, and it's like, and, and when John Belushi goes over the edge, Robin's like, I want to be here. He has like a very clear moment of like, I want to be here. I don't want that to be my story. And so he stops and then he, and he, and he starts taking on these things. And in the way that he engaged with AA, like it's, it's a very like all anonymous society. Right. But like, I have talked to people who went to meetings with him and they were like, he spoke more open and openly, more passionately and more humbly. Like when he was in those meetings, he was just a guy named Robin struggling with something that's a day-to-day thing. Yeah. And like, that is the beauty of Robin Williams, right? And like, even down to the idea that like he lived in like the suburbs, right? This yeah, guy but he was just in like a, a pretty normal neighborhood with just like, he just was like, I just want, I'm just a guy who likes meeting people and I happen to have this career, but that just was a, cool I mean, see. I carry cash around on me now to give to homeless people because just learning of what Robin gave to the people in the world and like, and the way that like, so I can never say I'm busier than Robin Williams was ever busy. And the idea that even in spite of his like level of demands of what he had to do in order to do all the things he wanted to do, he still found time for all these other things to be generous and kind. And like, I was like, it's just such a model. And, and the oh, idea yeah. that like, that we could have that back and remember that this is the guy from Goodwill Hunting. This is the guy from Jumanji. This is the Aladdin. This is the genie. Like that this guy was better than the guys in the movies and we can all love that and own that and feel that again. Um, That felt like such a fun project, right? And I I do think the film ends with the way I I think you leave feeling it was heavy and it gets gets really intense at times, but I, I hope people leave the film as the credits are starting to roll and like flip on, you know, Mrs. Doubtfire, flip on like, you know, some movie that they love for the Robins, a hook, right? Like, you know, just the idea that you're like, I got Robin back and now I can go watch his movies again and not be like weirded out by like what I thought was happening. Yeah, that like dark shadow of like, uh, you know, the so sad when you see him where you can be like, wow, it's now I know the story. Now I, I can get back to the joy that that he brought people that he wanted to bring that, you know, yeah. that, 
ultimately was was his goal, which I thought was. And as a, great a comedian, way. you can be like, okay, this guy was like Jesus, right? Like this guy was like comic Jesus, and like and that like there was no there's no dramatic dark cost to being like just a genius right like there's no like you know there's no devil's price to pay it's like no like oh, yeah he, he, he lived an incredibly beautiful generous giving exciting like electric life for 62 years until something that could have happened to anybody happened to him it happens to 1.4 million people every year right yeah. and it's an incurable neurological disease that like you know it's like a it's like a lightning bolt coming down and hitting yeah it's like there's nothing he could have done it's like what it does to your brain led to what what was gonna be yeah. you know well and it and it is i think as a comedian hearing that there's something extra cathartic because i think you know it's a trope but there is something to the like sad clown there's a reason it's a trope the whole sad clown shit of like a lot of a lot of people's favorite comedians do have like darkness and stuff they have you know that Who they maybe are working though? this on. is my thing right because i think set I, artists are generally more sensitive right like yes. and, and only more sensitive in the capacity that they feel their sensitivities more yes. right like everyone is as sensitive but they maybe don't acknowledge it or, or access it as readily and yeah. like the idea that this sad clown thing it's like oh they have darkness show me show me someone in the world who does not have darkness who doesn't right? exactly and so it's like <laughs> I, I think there was something uh, in talking, you know, with coworkers and friends when it all happened of this sort of like, it, depending on the mood you're in, because anyone who struggles with depression knows that like, it's really easy to talk about it theoretically when you're not in a pit of it, but going like, oh man, like he was like, he's like the king and he didn't, he couldn't get out of it. What am I I'm fucking, you know, we're all peasants down here. But then getting that relief a little bit not relief is not the right word but sort it of should be no it is a relief I guess one of the it is a relief yeah film, one of the things we did in this film is we were originally before covid we were going to be in 600 theaters and like so the theaters were like oh you know it'd be great is if we had some little exclusive content piece that we could run like ahead of the movie just like amp people up and i was like cool um so i went and got like a bunch of comedy store people right like like 30 comedians right yes. like um like Adam Ray and like, like just kind of people who are just like gamers who are like, yeah, let's do it. Um, and I went and interviewed all them. And like, I would say half to like 60%, like didn't know this story. They were just like, I love Robin. I'll do like a little promo piece. And then I was like, did you watch the trailer? And they're like, no. Cause it's like, God, oh. it's such a comedian thing. And I'm seeing that as someone who full disclosure, everyone, I was reached out to as well, but I, I panicked. Cause I was, I, I, I just, what happened to me was that I felt like, and I guess this is a testament to maybe imposter syndrome, but I, I kind of got this like, who the fuck am I? I yeah. You know, of like, oh, it's just, it's just sad. But I felt like, I was like, I'm just a person, I loved him. And not considering that like, how much of what he did shaped, especially the comedy store. Like, I'd love that you went there. Cause like, I mean, that's, was his like playground. And, yeah. and right now with COVID, it's like, I've been more or less off, off. I mean, I've been off stage since March. I, I did do one show in the comedy store window last week. Which oh, nice. I've been seeing so those weird. on like, social media. It's so weird. So weird. But I, I, think, I think everyone who's had whatever their normal creative outlet, but also job come to a halt is get it, going through a bit of an identity crisis. And I've been like, I just don't know. Maybe I should pivot into something else. And then seeing the clips like... I mean, literally seeing Robin like in that same window, I was like, my home, oh my God. And and having this moment of like, oh my God, like 
I, I am included at the place that Robin Williams like was developing all his comedic chops and shit was like, it was just a nice special little gift for me, not to brag to everyone listening. Who's like, well, that's not us, but I was, it just, that really hit home for me. I was like, uh, this he was like a hardcore comedy store guy like brett ernst in those little like um interviews that i did is this comedian who was like yeah i was at the comedy store one night we were hanging out in the parking lot at like 3 a.m and like robin williams comes up in like a cargo jacket like sort of just like looking like a homeless dude and like ends up hanging out with us in the parking lot for like an hour and it's like i mean like he was like a true he was really a part of the comedian culture like I mean, a lot of his friends who are in the movie, like Mike Pritchard and this guy Johnny Steele, and they're guys who like never made it, right? But they're like, they're they're they still do comedy, you know? Like, oh still, yeah. And it's like, I just think, and the other thing is like, um, Mort Saul's in this film for like just a second, but he's like kind of yes. up there with like Lenny Bruce of the world, right? Like he was, oh, like, yeah. he was like John Stewart before John Stewart. Like he was the first comedian to bring a newspaper on stage because he had like five minutes to kill. It was like, oh, let's see what's happening here, right? Like he was the <laughs> first one who thought like that. Was It'd be funny um and to like riff on the news and like the idea that robin like used this guy as a father figure in those last like he would go to mort's house and like talk about what he was going through and that mort was like and mort still performs every tuesday night for like 30 minutes right and it's like robin was that dude he would have absolutely if he'd have lived to do it he would have been 88 years old like down the street from his house at some yeah, little community yeah, like, down at the Throckmorton, doing like 30 minutes every Tuesday night, and it would be packed because it'd be people like me and you who'd be 70 or something like that, or 50 something, and being like, "Fucking Robin Williams shows up every Tuesday." Like, I know, God, it's it's a, such a fun theater too. I've done it. I I did it a couple times, and it's just oh, like, it's fantastic. What a it. a jam! And he, he didn't unfortunately pop in on the couple nights I was booked there, but you do go. That's so funny. Like the outside perspective as like this like little road comic who's just grinding and like, oh my God, I get to do this theater that I've heard comedians say say all this magical stuff about. And you go, this is a packed house at this theater in the middle of kind of like nowhere. Nowhere. And it's because everyone's hoping Robin might He's show, up. show up. to bum you out, but like they weren't there for you. Well, but no, 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 at no point. <laughs> yeah, no. Like, I, Robin could show, you know, but, it was like, and it was like, and you know, what is that place? Like 200 seats? 300? Yeah, well, just that magic of, and you see it at the comedy store as well, but just the magic of, everyone will come just because there's a chance we might get to see this guy do his like amazing thing because he would like you know most like he the idea that i love right and like and you never you hear about people showing up at the store and you go like oh my god like chris rock just shows up like whoa or like if you're in the com if you're in new york and you and you see the comedy sellers doing something and you're like oh my god like somebody jerry seinfeld could show up Absolutely. oh do i have you you're kind of like your video is frozen, but your sure audio is perfect. Can you hear me at all? Oh, audio is perfect. Okay, I'm back. Um, Am I back? Okay, yeah, you froze, but I was like, the audio is still going, so I'm just going to see if it works itself out. I'll right. fix it. Minor edit to the podcast. Yes. Um, so anyway, but you have these places like the store and the cellar that are like, just like, yeah, they're they're mythic in terms of like their significance. To yeah. But the idea that Robin just because he decided to live in this little town where he went to high school, right? Like this was a guy who could have lived anywhere and probably should have lived in LA cause he would have been like, you know, like, a, a, you know, it would have made more sense. But yeah. like he decided, no, for my health, for who I am, I need to live in this little town where I grew up. And like, it makes me feel at home. It makes me feel grounded. And yeah. like, and then he turned the, the, the tiny little spot, like community theater down the street into like a hot venue. A place because, to like, be, which is, I mean, it's 
speaks volumes to his power as an entertainer, but also to Just how much he loved it. Yeah. Like, he's like, I gotta, I gotta get up. I gotta get up somewhere. Yeah, I it's I want to give like an extra thank you just personally because I've been feeling so like maybe I'll pivot careers or like whatever and watching the documentary I was like man I think I just really got to get on stage like and I, I'm not obviously no part of me is like me and Robin Williams peas in a pod you know but like that's, that's the same it's the same vibe I learned a lot about comedians as a culture as a brotherhood as like a sort of I mean like nobody's doing this for the money right like there are these names oh. where you go oh shit right but like filmmakers i mean i don't know when the next thing i'm gonna make is this big and so but like i'm not gonna stop right it's like you you sort of keep sort of praying to this thing and showing up and like maybe something good happens but it really is how you feel at the end of the day and at yeah, the end of the day i'm happier making something than not making something and you're happier being on stage than not being on stage absolutely and it's a thing that like almost it almost feels like now that that it's extremely limited slash not really there is like, oh, it's actually, I think a thing I need for my sort of, and maybe it's just, I need routine and maybe there's something else that could be substituted, but this like for my own sanity. And I think yeah. looking Saul. at Robin- More Saul's up there doing it every Tuesday night at 91 years old. We should all be so lucky. I know, it's amazing. And I also think that there's a lot to be said about the fact that Robin did choose to live like in this suburban town that it's like, that he was also as committed to trying to maintain his own like health and sanity and he's like well th this is what feels good i think is is a valuable lesson for a lot of people because he was giving and giving and giving but he it, it's nice to see there were things that he was like i'm not going to sacrifice you know my the, my sanity by living in a nightmare LA neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, so I can get to Burbank in 30 minutes. It's like, no, he was like, I'm going to live where I want to live. And it's going to be a place where he played with the kids across the street. He'd walk his own dog. Like, you know, it's like, he was just a dude. And if you, if you see the, in the, his house in the film, it's like, this guy didn't have like, I imagine when, when Susan called me and said, oh, you can come up to the house and do interviews like in the house. And I was like, oh my God, I get to Into go in the castle house. of Robin Williams. Yeah. Yeah. And so like all of his stuff is in the house and you're like, oh my God. Um, and like, but like pulling up to the house, I was like, this is the, this, cause you're imagining, I mean, I'm imagining like Jim Carrey, Eddie Murphy, these guys must live with like eight foot tall thing, little guard out front, like in a booth, yeah. you know, like uh, 800 foot like driveway up to some giant. It was like, no, it was like, he just lived in a suburban area in like one of the nicer houses in the area, but like nothing insane, no, nothing crazy. It was and just like, like, and, like, and all the people were like, he'd come over to barbecues across the street. Like he played with my kids in the front yard. Like he'd walk his dog. Like one guy was like, yeah, he'd ride his bike around the neighborhood. And like, you know, he'd chat with me. The dude, John Hepper, who's in the film, who actually really incredibly from like a, just a history perspective, the idea that for the first time, this guy, John Hepper says, yeah, I saw Robin the night he passed, like yeah. he came to my house and like, we had this long conversation and he asked for a hug. And it was like, you're like, I was just, when he was telling that story, he didn't really, I didn't know what we were going into in that interview. And yeah. so I was oh, really wow. cool. like, this guy was a buddy of his and like another kind of father figure guy. This guy was like 25, 30 years older than Robin, but he was like ex CIA. So you're like, oh, wow. oh this dude's like Robin loved the military. So I'm sure he was like, oh, tell me some like crazy CIA yeah, stories. Yeah, crazy right? stories. Like, yeah. And so they would have like that vibe that they would get on. Um, but like this guy's like, oh yeah. And then, you know, like, and then, you know, the night before he passed, like the night he passed, like he came over to my house and like asked for a hug. And I was like, slow that down like, yeah you know, they're like, like what and, and, it was, and, and you get this sense of like 
just one, the idea that he could walk down the street to his buddy's house and like ask for a hug that like, that's the kind of community he created for himself, right? Like yes. deeply connected to that community and everyone loved him and everyone felt like they knew him. And like, he, you know, and it wasn't because like they, they'd seen him on TV. It was because like, he'd come over to the house and hang out and talk and like chill. And, you know, like he actually knew everybody and just was like a guy in the neighborhood who happened to be a mega superstar that like, if you, if, you know, so, but like, but that story with John Hepper was like, um, it was really powerful to me because it was like this this was a guy who was at at the end of his life he just didn't understand what was happening anymore and he was and he was losing touch with like what was reality because one of the things that you learn right before that is that like doctors had said oh like you guys should be sleeping separate you and your wife because one of the big um one of the big side effects of their uh side effects the causes symptoms yeah there you go one of the big symptoms of this is like you lose your ability to get into a deep sleep and so you kind of like thrash at night because you're like living out your dreams right Yeah, like you're not in full like full sleep state and so susan his wife yeah heartbreaking susan his wife is like his primary caretaker and she's telling me like i'm getting like one and a half hours of sleep a night for like a month and i'm like that's like tort. Like, how are you taking care of this guy? And you're getting an hour and a half of sleep a night yeah. and he's getting nice. like no sleep. And so like doctors were like, literally they went into a doctor's appointment and the doctor was like talking to Robin. And then he looks over to Susan. And he's like, what is your deal? And she's like, Oh, you know, he's not sleeping too well. And she describes the issue. And the, he, the doctor's like immediately, like, you guys need to sleep apart. You have to rest. If you're not healthy, you can't be a good caretaker. Like you're not helping him if you're like going through this. Like, so they, they separate them. And, and Robin is at a point, this is about like two weeks before he passes, where he doesn't understand that that means that they're just sleeping in separate beds. He actually yeah. asks his wife, does this mean we're separated? Like That was heartbreaking in the film. I was like, Oh no! But you understand, like that's what, like that's where his doctor, brain was. He's lost. A like, doctor later in the film says he had essentially the mental capacity of a child, right? Like, and it's like, and you don't fault a child for committing suicide because they don't know what they're doing. They're just deeply sad and they don't have the tools to unpack it all. Yeah, they can't. Unlike Robin that. would have had earlier in his life. So even there is the component of depression, but the problem is all the work and all the tools that he created for himself, he didn't have access to anymore because those had been taken away by this disease. And so that that's the thing where you go, oh, okay, like no foul, no harm, no foul. I love you, Robin. I'm sorry that this happened to you. There's no like, I forgive you. There's no, it's okay. Because he didn't do it, right? Like medically, yeah. he didn't have the mental capacity to be held accountable. Yeah, and I think everyone was uh, measuring what uh, happened with uh, the highest version of Robin Williams they know no, that's but, peak... 1980s Robin Williams and it's like no this is a guy who's lost his capacity to understand what's going on to and it happens so fast right that's the crazy thing about this Lou body dementia like Susan's like from two years before he goes he's he's on Broadway doing like a one-man show and then all of a sudden you know three days before he passes like you know basically just where his mental is is like he can't even form sentences he can't like he wants to tell it like one of the things that's so beautiful is the love story between him and Susan and like I mean, you can imagine like what it's like to be in a relationship with somebody as smart as Robin Williams. Like there's, there's these voicemails that we have that like one of them's uh, in the film, but there's a few other ones that didn't make it into the film that are just, it's just so lovely. He's like creating little so- songs for her and like the kind of extemporaneous poetry. And like, yes. it's, of course, Robin can like sort of like do that. Right. And the idea that at the end of his life, all he can do is just keep repeating. You're amazing. You're amazing. And like, and he, and she's like, and he felt so mad at himself that he couldn't come up with any other words. And she's like, it's honey, amazing's fine. Like, I love that you say that. But like, like he's he's kind of like in his head, being like, 
you know. Like he's like, he, where is all the stuff you know, that's usually? Where's like, all my like, stuff? Where's all my like? Because he's his his heart is still there. That's the powerful thing, right? The computer's broken, but the heart is still there. Going, I have so much to say, and I want to say it, and I can't get it out. And she's like, honey, it's okay, it's okay. But like, but neither of them know what's happening, and like, and that's the part. Again, to your point earlier about how when Robin got the Parkinson's diagnosis. And, and he kind of interrupts the doctor as the doctor's like, you're going to be fine. You're going to live for 10 more years. Parkinson's is no big deal. Like, and he goes, oh, but, 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 um, are you sure I'm not, I don't have dementia. And are you sure I'm not schizophrenic? And because the doctor he knew like, something was up. he immediately goes, dude, you're not, you're not doing, this is not right. I either have dementia or full on schizophrenia. Please tell me which one. And the doctor goes, no, no, you're fine. And Robin goes like, okay, I'm not going to get any help from medicine here. This yeah. Cause you, I mean, He's on his own. Yeah, it's like it happens with doctors too, that it's like, well, if you're, I I can't explain to you why my brain isn't the same as it, as I know it's been, because that's such a personal thing for everyone of like, you know that you're slipping, but how do you put that into words if it, everyone thinks like, oh, Robin Williams gets the best care, right? He's like got all the money in the world. He's gonna get the best care. But the other part of it is that actually was really interesting to me was to find out like, nobody wants to be the doctor that tells Robin Williams bad news. So you, you actually kind of get this like weird thing where like, they're like, uh, no, no, you're fine. Right. And then it's like, oh, like, right. Like, yeah, that's, the, that's so hard. Well, and this is something that it, Louis body can't be fully confirmed until after somebody passes away. Autopsy. Right. Cause you see in the brain, but there's so no they, way to, they did a ton of MRIs. They did crazy tests. They did all this stuff. And you can look at the MRIs now. And we had one of the experts look at it. And he's like, yeah, you can't really see these, these Lewy bodies on an MRI because you have to actually look at a cross section of the brain for them to show up because they just look like tissue otherwise. So it just looks like a normal brain with tissue. But once you actually see it with your eyes, you go, oh, my God. There's like, it's essentially like, uh, you know, the pimento loaf looks or something. I mean, it's like there's stuff in there that just should not be. Right? <laughs> yeah. Not indict pimento loaf, but like. But we've all seen a pimento love. Let's yeah. be honest. It's it's a rough situation. Yeah. Um, I I was bummed to see that his kids were in the film. Was there any? They just. I mean, honestly, they're entitled to their privacy. But the other thing is, they were they were older at the time that this all happened, right? They were in their yeah. like thirties, right? And it's yeah. like you know they didn't have a connection to this in the way that Susan and Robin did. And honestly, you could really give Robin a lot of credit as being a good parent because yeah. he didn't want his kids. He didn't know what was happening to him. And if your parent like ran to you and was like, I, I don't know what's going on. I feel I'm like losing I'm it. Yeah. And like, but I don't want to freak you out. So like, just, um, you know, I'll let you know. It's like, so he was like, I need to figure this out and then I'll tell people. Cause he didn't even tell his closest friends. No, yeah, it was a testament. Susan actually knew the depth of it. Yeah, because she's with him every day and seeing it. And then I, th- I think it's just, you know, obviously. I wish, they would, I wish they would have been in it, but it is honestly they're entitled to their privacy. Of course. And, and it's like, and honestly, the reason that Susan felt like she needed to speak, like needed to, as opposed to like it would be a cool thing to be a part of, she needed to speak was because she felt like she lived this with Robin. This was their trauma as a couple. They were like essentially newlyweds, right? When this was all, they were only been, they'd only been married for three years. Three years, so like, yeah. So the idea that like, this was like her, I mean, they were, they were like so excited for what they were going to do. And the idea that in the last two years of that three years of being newlyweds, they're going through this like insane fight that they, that they end up losing. And like, and that no one ever knows the truth of that and actually gets it not only wrong, but like oppositionally wrong, right? Like, yeah. Like that was something where she was like, I have to get this out. 
and like, and I don't think his kids have that because they, it's not their, they didn't live, a, they didn't get traumatized for two years up to the day, right? Yeah, like, and there's, yeah. I mean, I think it, you know, I may be wrong, but I think it speaks to his character of, I don't want anyone else to be. I totally there. understand. I mean, I don't have kids, but if I did, you never want to freak your kids out with like, hey, I'm losing it. I don't know what's going on, but like, stay tuned. You know, like. Yeah, it's like, they're like, who knows? Anyway, love you. Gotta go. And you're like, why are oh. you just going to leave me on the line like that? So, yeah, I, I mean, it's but great. I definitely that- know parents who would vent like that to their kids and like, that's not cool. <laughs> I mean, oh no, it's, I'm like, that's my mother. The wind yeah, blow. So- and she's like, I think this is the end come home and i'm like i think you just want me to help you paint the house like why don't you just say that but yeah it is funny because knowing the other end of parenting i'm like yeah good call maybe on like let me just get this or get clarity before you drop a drop a bomb on people and go here's some shit so um i thought this was i mean it was so beautiful and i think it's great that she was able to you know I'm sure it was very healing for Susan as well, just to go, here's what I was going through and sharing her side and her view and that, that personal journey that, you know, people don't know. Cause everyone, like you said at the beginning of this interview to circle back is like the way the news handled it was all so much like crazy speculation. And, um, and the other thing that I think is really beautiful is like from a love story angle, it's like, God, I hope we'd all be, so, I mean, so few people get so lucky as Robin did, like, you know, but like to have somebody when you die in that, in that fashion, who loved you so much to be so strong and to be so representative of who you guys were as a couple to, to take on all this shit. Cause one of the things I think is so lovely is like Robin's childhood, like college roommate friend, Stanley Wilson is it like says powerfully, he's like, you know, Susan, you know, everybody deals with trauma in their own way. And the way we should, in the film, when he, when he says that, we're showing her like doing this advocacy work that she's doing, because I really saw her honestly, like this is actually almost like my experience of her story that isn't even in the movie. But it's like, when we met two years after Robin had passed, she was still writing back to fans, like in, in like condolence letters and stuff, right? She was still writing these letters back, feeling like this is the best I can do for me. And Robin is just not let his fans down and make sure they all get a letter back. And it's like, but, but as we were sort of starting what we were doing, she was really understanding the depth and the power of LBD and what it did to Robin in terms of what the potential of her getting the story out could do for Robin and as a gift to more people. And she realized that like this grief that she was sort of expressing and writing back to fans could have so much more power if it was expressed through like advocacy work. And I saw her really make that change, like just as we were starting the documentary. And it was like, it was this woman who was crushed from yeah. losing the love of her life, who she thought she was gonna die with, right? Like, You're like we're gonna grow old together. I mean, yeah. their love is so beautiful when you see it in the film, it's. So yeah, just that idea that like, that yeah, like that, that she took this pain, this unimaginable pain of becoming a widow when you thought you'd found the love of your life and turned that into something that now, you know, she's raised millions of dollars for research for this disease. She's like, you know, got, done countless speaking engagements to doctors about how to better diagnose people so that they don't have to have Robin's story. I mean, it's like, she doesn't have to do any of that. Like she's a no. painter, she can go back to her house and just chill. But she's like, this is something that is good for, the world and, and it's a gift that I can be a part of giving on behalf of Robin 
And that for me was like, holy crap, like that's huge. Yeah. Just, I mean, just even hearing like her wanting to write back to his fans is like, and that, I mean, you can understand like that for her felt like a good use of her time. Cause you know, that, that helped Robin. Like she's not doing that for the fans. She's saying that like, I'm going to keep Robin's memory alive by like getting back to his fans so that they don't feel like he's like, they got, they, they didn't get a response. Like, yeah. and then she realizes that that pain that she's like kind of reliving in every, every response to these letters can be expressed in such a more powerful way by ad- advocating for like research and, and sort of awareness about the disease. And that's where her story during the making of this film took a dramatic turn towards like just such an upbeat thing. Yeah, which like, is incredible that she yeah. found this like gift that she could put all that energy into. Because it's true. I've n- I had never heard of Louis body dementia till Same. till this. And uh, and hearing you say the number earlier, it's like, well, why haven't we heard of it? Well, because but, the weird thing is, right, like 1.4 million is still on like the scale of disease. It's like very rare. And it's like, I mean, crazy. you get 1.4 million people in a room and like it doesn't seem so rare, but. Like, this is bad. Yeah. Yeah, but if you're talking about cancer, it's like, you know, tens, if not 100 million people or whatever in the world. And so you go, okay. Um, but it's still, you know, it's it, it really, they're finding that it's on the same spectrum as Alzheimer's and it's on the same spectrum as Parkinson's disease. And so once you start putting the umbrella together, which is actually really interesting. I mean, this is far afield from what you should be interested in, but um, <laughs> cancer, they actually used to do the same thing with cancer. They'd say, oh, you got colon cancer and brain cancer and heart cancer and pancreatic cancer. And, and they'd all have their own organizations and they'd all have their own sort of causes and they'd all be funding their own research. And then at some point somebody was like, cancer. Yeah. And they put it all together as one big thing. And all of a sudden it had this huge moment of like really mo- momentum, right? Yeah, I, of, I think of the, the research and awareness. Have the same, where like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and Lewy body dementia, and all these things will sort of be like, it's all dementia, right? It's all different forms of dementia. And like we can move or Alzheimer's or whatever they decide on in terms of the verbiage. But like they can go forward and say like, this is the thing. And they'll be more powerful together than they are separate. Absolutely. And I think I'm, I'm sure there's a lot to be said about the research and the awareness of each of them kind of hopefully lifting up for the future of any of those prognoses. Um, well, I mean, thank you. This has been amazing. I guess, is there anything that like you learned or just a story hmm. in the course of you, you know, doing all these interviews, was there anything huge that like jumped out at you that was like a favorite moment or a a favorite story (sighs) to wrap on wow um there's so many honestly but like i think the one that was really powerful to me that i think really gets to the spirit and the heart of who robin was was from the uso and this woman elaine rogers who runs the dc version of you or dispatch of uso which is where walter reed medical hospital is right and walter reed is one of the hospitals where like if you get a limb blown off in iraq they put you on a chopper they put you on a jet and you're at walter reed like nine hours later right um and so those guys are fresh from the battlefield yeah wow and so robin would go to walter reed unannounced right and like just call up like elaine that morning and say hey i want to i want to spend some time with guys and do what i can today and they just like you know really donate and he did that for homeless people he did that for the mentally handicapped like he he would just do that just show up and say like i i got a day i want to give and he would just like spend time and one of the beautiful things was there was this guy and it's touched on in the film but there was this guy who'd come back from Iraq and he'd lost an arm and a leg 
right? And um, as they were going down the hall and Robin was meeting all these people, this woman ran out of the room and like passed them. And Robin was like, what was that? And she's like, oh, well, that's a room of a guy who just came back and he's missing some limbs. And so they go in there and, um, and the guy is like, my girlfriend just left and she's not coming back because she can't deal with this. Yeah. And so this guy is like, in a moment, and Elaine describes it as like, this guy was in a spot that a lot of soldiers are, which is that like, maybe this is the rest of my life. Like no one's ever going to love me again. Yeah. And Robin, rather than goes like, hey, it's Robin. He like sits down with the guy and talks really deeply and openly about what it's like to feel like you're not enough and to have these moments and like just really vibes with this guy and connects with this guy and leaves the guy feeling, you know, not upbeat, but that like he's heard and he's seen. Yeah, that he's been able and to it, actually express those. And the idea that Robin Williams, the guy who from all the movies who can make us laugh and do all that stuff can go onto the front lines of mental health, right? Can go sit with a guy like that in that moment and give him some peace, I think told me everything I needed to know about who this guy really was. That is magical. Well, thank you for, uh, for spending time with me talking about this to everyone listening. Uh, there's a link in the show notes, go check out Robin's wish. It's, it's incredible. And I, you know, Anyone who's a Robin fan, I think, will will love it. It gives it definitely gives you this sense of relief and and sort of closure on a thing that maybe you're hanging into and hanging on to. You know, it still sad that he's gone, of course, but it sort of gives this like bookend of what a great life, what a wonderful surrounding he had, and and just that assurance that he's he's just as amazing as we always thought he was and even more so um all right well thank you thanks for being part of the show my pleasure totally bye everybody there you go tyler norwood the director of robin's wish i cannot stress enough do yourself the favor of of seeing this movie it really you know if you're a big robin fan might give you some closure and it's just beautiful to see the people he was closest to share their memories and share their love of him um while educating people about Louis body dementia and all that that can impact, which is, of course, a very unfortunate illness. And thoughts and prayers to anyone who uh, knows someone or is someone who's suffering with that, because it sounds like hell and it can't be easy. Well, if you like the podcast and you you didn't hit the subscribe button at the beginning of the episode, I'm willing to forgive you if you go do it right now. Leave me a rate and a review on iTunes. Share this podcast with your friends because everybody's a little bit ignorant sometimes. Big thank you to John, Eric, Jean, Greg, Kathy, and Terry, exclusive members of the League of Extraordinary Idiots on Patreon. Couldn't do it without you. Can't wait to see you at the next crappy hour and et cetera, et cetera. If you want to join the League of Extraordinary Idiots or any level of Patreon, I I send out fun cards in the mail. We do hangouts. And like I said, I'm now exclusively putting my stand-up videos out there um, until, you know, until a bigger special comes along. But no more YouTube, no more Instagram. It is all there. Uh, And for as little as a dollar a month, you can get yourself some laughs and also help me out. And I appreciate it. These are weird times. And I'm not doing stand-up shows at the rate I usually do them. So I am having to get creative. Uh, And if you love the podcast, you want to be more involved, but you just can't afford to spare a dollar. Look, I get it. I'm literally on a microphone begging you for money. And you don't even really know me. There is a Facebook group. Ignorance is hashtag blessed idiots. Go there. Post your questions. 
post a meme, get involved, have some laughs, have some conversations. It's a, a safe space for unsafe questions and opinions. If you want to bring something up that you're like, hey, this is a thing I keep reading about. And uh, I don't really understand it because I've always felt this way, etc., etc. Maybe talk a little bit of politics without any fighting or, you know, name calling and bullshit. That's a place for it. Follow Ignorance is Blessed on Instagram if you want to put faces to the voices you're hearing when you listen to this podcast. And uh, please keep in mind that no guest is or claims to be a representative for every person who has a similar identity. They're just one person sharing their own experience and ideas to help us get a peek at how things look from their situated position in the world. If you have additional questions for Tyler or you have a topic or a guest you want covered, best way to get those to my ears is really through my eyes in the Facebook group. Post there and also join because I'll usually post there before I interview someone asking for questions. So that's the way to get your questions in. Uh, particularly, you know, there's no particularly. Honestly, it's the way to get your questions in. And I appreciate those questions. So keep asking them because the more we ask, the more we learn, the more we know. And the more we know, the more we can look down on others who aren't as smart as we are. Isn't that the point? Don't forget to use Filthy20 at SquattyPotty.com to get your butthole-releasing Squatty Potty. The Squatty Potty doesn't physically release your butthole, but it helps. Look, why did I say that? Look, thank you for listening, and thank you for being patient with my ignorance. I'll see you soon, idiots. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.